Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 29. After Hours with Dr. Holly Ordway. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, and it's therefore an after-hours episode. Now, you may recall that last season we spoke to Dr. Diana Glyer, who explained that the established narrative around the literary influence of the Inklings wasn't exactly correct. It was commonly thought that the Inklings didn't influence each other. Uh, And it's often exemplified by Lewis's comment that no one ever influenced Tolkien, you might as well try to influence a bandersnatch. Well, today we have on the show Dr. Holly Ordway, and in her new book, she asks us to reevaluate some other narratives surrounding the creator of The Lord of the Rings. Dr. Holly Ordway is the Fellow of Faith and Culture for Word on Fire Institute. Her writing, speaking, and teaching at the Institute focuses on imaginative and literary apologetics and on the work of J.R.R. Tolkien. She is also a visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. In addition to writing articles, essays, and poems, in pre-COVID days, she traveled in the U.S. and internationally as a guest speaker. She's written a number of books, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination, An Integrated Approach to Defending the Faith, and a memoir, Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms. But her newest book, and the subject of today's episode, is Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle-Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. Dr. Ordway. Welcome to Pints with Jack. Oh, thank you for having me on. It is a pleasure. It's really nice to be talking to you again because we spoke last year when uh, I was on the other side of the country. And I heard about this upcoming book and I got all excited. So I've pretty much pestered you every couple of months just to check, is it, is it done yet? Can, can we talk about it? <laughs> well, it has been a long time in the making, um, really 10, 10 years in, in the gestation. And it has expanded, and my editors have been very patient with me at Word on Fire with allowing me to have one more bit of information that I put in, and and one more, and oh wait, I found this new, one more cool thing, and until pretty much the 11th hour and 59th minute when it finally <laughs> went off to uh, the printers. Wonderful. Well, each episode we share a quote, a drink, and a toast. And although we're going to be talking about Tolkien today, the quote of the week does come from Lewis and from an experiment in criticism. Lewis writes, Those of us who have been true readers all our life seldom fully realize the enormous extension of our being which we owe to the authors. We realize it best when we talk to an unliterary friend. He may be full of goodness and good sense, but he inhabits a tiny world. In it, we should be suffocated. The man who is contented to be only himself, and therefore less a self, is in prison. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through the eyes of others. In reading great literature, I become a thousand men, and yet remain myself. And the drink of the week, uh, today is actually Taifu tea, which I recently found out was the tea that Lewis typically drank. Dr. Ordway, are you drinking anything? I am. I'm drinking some good um, English breakfast tea, so... Excellent choice. Well, let's uh, let's toast one of our gold-level Patreon supporters. Today, we are toasting Kayla Sanderson. Kayla, may your life be filled with great literature and, of course, big cups of tea. Cheers. 
Cheers. So before we talk about your book, let's let's go back in time. When did you first pick up a Tolkien book? Well, so early that I can't even remember when it exactly it was. Um, I know that when I was a girl, I read The Hobbits very early on. I, I know I read The Hobbit first, and then at some point after that, I read The Lord of the Rings. But I really only remember rereading it because I just managed to read get it, get it so so early, um, probably single digit age, uh, and then. I encountered Tolkien's literary criticism when I was a teenager, um, probably about 14 or 15, when I came across a battered old copy of the Tolkien Reader um, and, and bought it. I think it cost me maybe like 25 cents or something like that. And it had his essay on fairy stories. And that pretty much blew my mind. Um, and I think you know that really, in a way, is the marker of my 30 years engagement with Tolkien as a literary critic, because I really think that that made a huge kind of impression on me. Uh, even though at the time I didn't know that I was going to become a literary critic, that was my, you know, the opening of the door into seeing how you could think about literature in an appreciative way, in a way that helped you to um, understand it better and enjoy it more. And also my, my encounter with Tolkien's mind. Um, and that essay has really stuck with me. It, it was something that I worked closely with in doing my dissertation. Um, and then, you know, ever since then, you know, just returning to it again and again. And it was the first place that I went for source material when I began 10 years ago to investigate what became Tolkien's modern reading. I think you're a very special kind of teenager. I don't think too many parents, you know, come into their parents' room and discover hidden under their bed a copy of On Fairy Stories. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I, I was I was sort of nerdy from an early age, and it had just stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're bringing out a new book, Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. You said that this book has been in gestation for 10 years. So what was the initial uh, spark that got this got this started? Well, I had been thinking, well, I've been thinking seriously about The Lord of the Rings as, as a work of literature for a long time. Like I said, I had done my dissertation on modern fantasy um, and, you know, the history of the genre. So I knew a fair bit about the, the you know, the context of modern fantasy literature at the time Tolkien was writing it and, and beforehand. And so I finished my dissertation. I went on, I was, I was teaching, etc. And I just kept coming back to this sort of question of, well, you know, the Lord of the Rings is, is so important and, and had such a powerful effect on the fantasy that came after it. But I realized that I had not really come across a satisfactory explanation of where did the Lord of the Rings come from? Because it just didn't seem to me quite to make sense that he had ignored all of the contemporary fantasy that was being written at his time. I thought, well, surely he has read some of those authors that, that were being published in his day. I wonder, I wonder which ones he read. So I started to investigate what had he read of modern fantasy. And then I kept finding more and more things. And I realized that the question was much bigger. It was what had he read of modern literature in general? Because I found that he had just read so much more than I had any idea. I completely did not expect to find what I did find. I thought I was gonna maybe come up with you know, a handful of authors. And I ended up with, um, I think, 148 separate authors in my appendix and more than 200 titles that we know for sure that Tolkien knew. And this really helped me as over the process of, of investigating this and, and, re and going reading these books, it helped to get back to that question of where did the Lord of the Rings come from? 
because it never has made sense to me that this book that is internationally, intergenerationally popular, that's so compelling, that speaks so powerfully to the 20th century, to the 21st century, how, how could this book come into being if the author was only reading medieval literature? Because I also read medieval literature. I love it. It's wonderful stuff. But you don't take typically Beowulf to the beach. You know, you don't find <laughs> people reading Mallory, you know, on oh, come the on. I'm pretty sure you probably took Beowulf to the beach. <laughs> Well, I, I did. You, you did know that I was a very weird teenager, so I'm, I'm an <laughs> outlier. Um, but I, you just can't you can't explain it with just the medieval sources. Now, those sources are there. They're present. They're hugely significant. But the more that I could have looked at him in context, the more I just thought that's not the whole picture. Um, and so really, Tolkien's modern reading has been my effort to get a fuller picture so that we can understand his creative imagination more fully. Like how, how did he achieve the effect that he did? And, and I would argue that it's, it is precisely because he was bridging two eras. He's engaged with medieval literature, absolutely. And with languages, absolutely. But he's also engaged with modern concerns. He's aware of modern forms. He's, you know, he's reading and, and thinking seriously about modern authors. And those things together combine to to give him the material for this, you know, amazing creative work that he does. So I had often heard it repeated that all Tolkien read was Beowulf on repeat and all of these old books that I had never heard of. How did this sort of enter the zeitgeist? How, how did this become the prevailing opinion of virtually everyone that I ever spoke to or listened to a talk or read a book? It seemed to be everywhere. It is, and it's. It, that was a fascinating thread that I that I followed up on. Where, where did this idea come from? Because it's just incorrect. But how how did it come into to play in the first place? And I think there's there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one of them is that oddly enough, people have sort of wanted him to be nostalgic and stuck in the past. There's there's you know even in some of the, his early interviews that he did. There's interviewers who seem to expect that, of course, he only is interested in medieval stuff. I mean, there's one interview where um, the uh, interviewer makes sort of a disparaging comments about like, well, of course, you don't read the news. And he says, no, I, I read the newspaper every day. In fact, I read three newspapers and I'm very interested in local and regional and international news. That's Tolkien making the point to his interviewer who was just blithely assuming that, of course, he didn't care about current events. No, he reads three newspapers. He's he's very interested in current events. Maybe the interviewer had spoken to C.S. Lewis the day before and just assumed that they were all the same. Well, that's actually, that's another part of it because Lewis and Tolkien um, have so often been lumped together. They've been made into what I call in the book, the, the tall Lewis, kind of like the <laughs> Chester Bellock. People assume that because they were both, you know, teaching at Oxford, interested in medieval literature, members of the Inklings, that therefore all of their tastes were exactly the same. Well, no, um, even in something as simple as, you know, technology, C.S. Lewis never learned to drive a car. Tolkien did and enjoyed it. In fact, he, he speaks highly of the pleasure of driving a car. He just didn't like the way that the road makers destroyed the countryside to make all these roads. Um, C.S. Lewis never used a typewriter. <laughs> his brother, Warren, had to type his letters for him. Um, he always used a dip pen. But Tolkien was a kind of a kind of a typewriter nerd. He owned three different typewriters. He had ones with fancy philological, you know, symbol 
thingies to go in there. Um, and he would talk about like all the different typewriter models and their pros and cons. So this is very different from, from Lewis, who's still using a dip pen to write his letters. So I think that if Tolkien, if he were alive today, he'd probably be podcasting, right? I like that <laughs> <You> idea. <laughs> Although I don't think he would ever actually release an episode because he'd be convinced that he could improve the first episode with a few more rewrites and re-records. You know, that's a true statement. The edit button would just do him in. Okay, so people almost wanted him to be this medieval dinosaur. Uh, they confused him for Lewis. Any, any other reasons why we have this pervade, pervasive narrative? Well, we have a big reason, and that, oddly enough, is his um, first authorized biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, indeed the only authorized biographer so far. Carpenter was a very early biographer, um, and he's the only one so far who's been given unrestricted access to the unpublished Tolkien papers. And his biography really sets in stone this image of Tolkien as stuck in the past. And, and Carpenter even says in the biography that Tolkien um, took no notice of modern fiction, read very little, and took no notice, took no serious notice of it, and that for him, literature stopped with Chaucer. And this statement that Tolkien read very little modern literature and took no serious notice of it, that's Carpenter's words, that is simply factually incorrect. Because I have shown just with the evidence, whatever interpretation you put with the evidence that he read a great deal of modern literature and he took very serious notice of it in his letters and his essays. So Carpenter is presenting this image that's just completely off base. And what I found, because this puzzled me, like what, what's going on? And what I found is that I, I tracked down interviews that Carpenter himself had done and it turns out that he didn't like Tolkien very much. He didn't like the Inklings. He, he basically talked smack about them in one interview, saying they're a bunch of, you know, Oxford, um, you know, mutual admiration society that, that went off and talked about their, their work in a corner. And that if, that if he were to go back in that time, he wouldn't even want to, you know, hang out with them. Pearls before swine. <laughs> yeah, he makes, he makes fun of Tolkien's academic work, you know, says that it's a dead subject. He, and he admits that his first um, draft of the Tolkien biography was written as slapstick, that he thought that Tolkien was just a kind of a, a kind of a silly, weird guy with a, what he calls an uptight um, upbringing. And it's important to note that one of the things that Carpenter didn't get was Tolkien's faith. You know, Tolkien was a devout Catholic. Carpenter was the son of the Anglican Bishop of Oxford and had become an atheist by the age of 21. He had a big chip on his shoulder about religion, and he had a big chip on his shoulder about the academic scene in Oxford. And I think both of those things really kind of gave him an agenda. Again, in another interview, he said, Carpenter himself said, that for him, every biography is really about the biographer. It's his own working out of, of ideas and his own personality, and that if he wanted to, he could take the same biography and, and rewrite it and have a totally different, you know, totally different presentation. So we see from Carpenter's own words that he, he really wasn't particularly interested in an objective, accurate presentation of his subject. Um, this was his first book. Um, he wrote it in under two years, although he had masses of material. And let me tell you, as an author, 
two years is not enough time to deal with that, especially since he had to read Tolkien's handwriting. And I've looked at enough of Tolkien's original letters to know that that is by no means an easy task. And it turns out um, that the first draft of the biography, um, Christopher Tolkien, um, Tolkien's son, read it and ripped it to shreds with, you know, with, with all the problems with it. And Carpenter took it back and had it, you know, in, in a week or two, um, was, was finished with a revision. And what Carpenter did is he just cut all the bits that, that were causing, you know, any sort of contention. But that doesn't, that doesn't change like problems of interpretation and it doesn't address what is left out because what you leave out can sometimes misrepresent things as much as what you put in. So the upshot of it was that this biography is published that it was kind of a, you know, fast, fast work, sloppy, sloppy work, I would say, um, with an agenda that really wasn't particularly well thought of by Christopher Tolkien, but got hacked up enough to be acceptable. And then it goes out and because it's the authorized biography and because Carpenter can write, you know, we'll give him this credit. He, he can, he knows his way around a sentence. It's very readable. And because of that, everybody very naturally, very understandably took him at his word, you know, if, if Carpenter said that Tolkien read very little modern fiction and took no serious notice of it, well, I guess he must, he must not have. Oh dear. Um, and that really has cast a huge shadow um, on really Tolkien studies. Um, and it's only been in recent years that some critics have very helpfully started to push back against that and to start to kind of interrogate some of those things. And I'm glad that you mentioned Diana Glyer because you know, her work has been just hugely, hugely influential. Um, and she's one of the people who did some really most important work in challenging Carpenter's narrative because Carpenter also, you know, gives that view of the Inklings as being like, oh, well, you know, they, they didn't influence each other. And she's saying, well, no, they did. And that's kind of like the crack in the, in the foundations that lets you see that there's, there's other problems going on with this biography. And that makes me wonder how many other prevailing opinions about Tolkien probably deserve to be challenged or at the very least re-examined that might come from originally that biography. Yeah. And, you know, of course, my focus on his reading. So I, you know, stuck with that. But in the process of my research, I could spot these things where I'm like, you know, someone ought to investigate that. I mean, just as one example, it's, it's kind of common wisdom that Tolkien was, you know, a member of the male only society of Oxford, you know, well, he, he didn't really like women, he didn't know women. Well, that's nonsense. Um, and part of it, again, is conflation with Lewis. Um, but you know, Tolkien was married. Um, he had a daughter. He had a granddaughter. He spent time with them, um, and there were lots of time and again. I came across you know he he admired women authors. He had women colleagues. He had women students. He actually made a was particularly open to having female students at a time when Oxford was a little bit like yeah you know about women about women students. And here's an example of how Carpenter's biography kind of slanted that. Just one, one thing, um, Tolkien helped to found an Oxford literary society called The Cave. Well, that society, it turns out, was a, was a co-ed society. It was both men and women. And among the members were you know, several of Tolkien's female colleagues on the English faculty, several of whom he himself noted were good friends of his. 
So he was a member of a literary society that had women in it. But you know what? When Carpenter mentions this, he only lists male members. And all the subsequent biographers have just repeated Carpenter's list of members. They haven't gone back and looked at the actual list of members. So everyone reading Carpenter and the biographers who come after him, they assume that, oh, the cave, another, another boys club, another male only <laughs> thing that Tolkien, he didn't relate with women when in fact, that's just factually not the case. Okay, so let's talk about what you d discovered as you uh, were writing this book. But before we get to that, my first question is, how did you work out what Tolkien had read and what he hadn't read? Well, the, what he hadn't read, you can't, you can't show up a negative, but the, uh, what he had read, I took it as my, my focus that I was only going to write about books that I could certainly know that he knew. Um, now you can't necessarily judge how well he knew a book, but you can know whether he whether he knew it. So I did not talk about or include in my list books that his colleagues knew, or that you know that had some similarities in themes, or that oh, everybody knew these books. There's a lot of things that we might call probables that could be very interesting, and they might indeed be very probable. But I didn't look at those. So what I looked for were the certains. And what I did is I looked through all of his published writings um, and all of his interviews and all of his letters in, um, and looked for any reference that he made to any, any book, um, title, author. Um, even if he made an allusion to something and didn't mention the title, I tried to track it down. And in fact, I was able to track down um, some books that you know, had not been identified because he, he mentioned you know, a book, such and such a book without giving the title. But with various detective work, I was able to figure out what it was. I also looked at interviews with his family um, and with his students and his colleagues and anyone who knew him to see if they mentioned something that maybe he had talked about with them um, or that they knew that he that he knew. Um, and this this yielded some surprises. For instance, there's a, a lecture by George Sayer that I, I listened to. Um, where Sayer just kind of offhand mentions that um, Tolkien thought very highly of the poetry of Dylan Thomas. And that, as far as I know, has never been published anywhere. Um, and it was mentioned, and George Sayer was a friend of, of Tolkien's. And he says it as like, oh yeah, this is something that, you know, Tolkien was, you know, thought well of him. So I would count that as a certain, because that's something that Tolkien knew enough to talk about with his friend. Um, and I also looked at books that he is known to have owned. Um, now, granted, you can own a book without reading it, but you probably, there's a good chance that you've read it, at least you're familiar with it. So I looked at what, whatever I could find of um, books that he had owned, um, looking at auction catalogs, for instance. I even managed to get um, some photographs that were taken um, in the 1960s where he has the backdrop of his study. And by looking <laughs> at the shelves and with some Detective work, looking at the bindings, um, was able to identify several works that had never been noted before, including some works by C.S. Lewis. And that's how I know, for instance, that he owned um, Till We Have Faces and um, the whole space trilogy, uh, Ransom trilogy. Um, so they're on his, they're on his shelves. <laughs> so that's, it was a wide array of, of ways that I did, did this. Um, looked at his un, unpublished writings when I could, um, went to the British Library, um, the Bodleian, um, Wade Center, Marquette in uh, Wisconsin. So I went lots of places to look at everything I could possibly find that might give me some little bits of evidence in my 
pulled them all together. Excellent. Oh, that's that's really cool. <laughs> so, who did Tolkien read? And uh, before I let you answer that, I will have to remind you that I was failed by my educational system. My uh, knowledge of literature is appalling. This is one of the main reasons that I read Lewis, so he can tell me all the people that I need to be reading. So, as you tell us who Tolkien read, if you could just give us a rough idea as to who this person was. Well, that's, you know, that's a, it's a kind of good caveat because one of the things that I discovered when I was looking at Tolkien's reading is that a lot of the authors that he read and indeed some that were highly significant to him are authors who've been completely forgotten today. Um, so for instance, who today has even heard of someone like J.H. Shorehouse? Um, probably no one. Um, but J.H. Shorehouse's book, John Inglesant, was very significant for Tolkien. It was, and it was in his time, a hugely popular book. It was even endorsed by the prime minister. And Tolkien thought it was a very interesting um, book, um, worthy of, of discussion. And, and I, I think that it yielded some influence in terms of the themes of pity and mercy in The Lord of the Rings. So it's, it's really quite a significant book for Tolkien. Uh, but, you know, it's not in print. Um, no one's heard of it. And no one knows anything about this author. Uh, so that was part of the detective work was finding out who, who is Shorthouse and going and reading the book. Because one thing to note, oh, Tolkien read this author. But how many people have gone back and read those books? <laughs> I have. And <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest, sometimes it was a slog. My literary tastes and Tolkien's did not always completely concur. Um, <laughs> so sometimes it was a bit of a slog. Uh, but it was it was the only way really to get a sense of kind of the furniture of Tolkien's mind was mm. to read these books that he had read. So um, so there's been a lot of authors that I could mention that no one has heard of. Um, I, I mentioned Dylan Thomas, um, the poet. Um, another poet that he admired uh, was Roy Campbell, who was a you know writing a modern verse. He wrote a book called Flowering Rifle: Poems from the Battlefield of Spain. So very modern, very kind of you know, brusque and, and bracing, not what you would think that Tolkien would like, but he greatly admired um, Campbell's verse, praised, praised him highly for, you know, probably not surprisingly, he was very well versed in children's literature, um, both for his own children and grandchildren and for his professional work. Um, so for instance, he, he greatly admired Beatrix Potter. He called her stories masterly and he loved um, the works of Lewis Carroll. Um, he even he even um, translated the Walrus and the Carpenter into Elvish, <laughs> which is just kind of cool. Um, <laughs> so there's there's that, um, and then you know fantasy novels. Um, he he knew the work of William Morris, um, a very significant figure for him. The story historical fantasies, uh, also the fantasies of uh, Lord Dunsany. People might recognize that name. They're they're 1920s kind of Edwardian Edwardian um, fantasy. Um, but some names that um, are familiar that might be a surprise would be realists like um, E.M. Forster, the author of Howard's End, mm -hmm. and Tolkien actually um, nominated Forster for the Nobel Prize. So wow. he must he must have thought reasonably well of Forster's work. Um, he read James Joyce. 
Um, and he was interested enough in Finnegan's Wake that he read the first part of that, Anna Livia Pluribel, that was published separately, read it when it first came out. That was something that was interesting to track down. Um, transliterated um, the name Anna Livia Pluribel into Elvish. So clearly he was interested in the name. Um, and he makes a bunch of notes about Joyce's work. So, you know, did he like or approve of everything Joyce was doing? No, he did not. Did he take Joyce seriously and try to engage with him as an author? Yes, he did. And that I found to be very, very interesting. And that's, and very, get- and that's very Lewisian because Lewis did something very similar. He would read authors where some of the ideas behind them, he thought was ter- you just thought some of the ideas behind these books are terrible. But as you say, this man knows his way around a sentence. Exactly. Well, E.R. Edison is another author that falls in that category. He's a science fiction fantasy author. um, And Tolkien said that he read all that Edison wrote. He praises him very highly as a creative or imagined world. But he also specifically says that the philosophy that Edison had was evil and cruel. He thoroughly disapproved of Edison's philosophy, but praised his work, um, the literary power of it. So again, this is a complexity of mind that we see in Tolkien that, that frankly, I wasn't expecting when I went into this, but by the time I finished my research, I saw again and again and again. And so what's the consequence of all of this? Now that we know all of these other books that Tolkien read, literature that he engaged with, how does that help us understand him and his work better? Well, I hope fundamentally that it it gives us a more well-rounded view. Uh, I am hoping that this will allow us more clearly to see what his creative imagination was like, Um, because that's that's a theme of the book. You know, one of the things I want to do is it's it's all very well to find what he read, but okay, having found it, what does it mean? Why is it important? And that's the question that I always kept asking. Why should we care about this? Why does it matter? How does it help us understand Tolkien and his imagination? And I think that knowing the different streams that fed his imagination give us a better understanding of the way that his mind worked. Um, and I, I think it helps us see better what he was doing in his literary work and see it, really see more depths in it. Um, I, I, mean, I found that this this study made me appreciate Tolkien's skill as a writer 10 times more. And my, and my opinion was pretty darn high to start with. Uh, <laughs> So I'm hoping that it will it will provide a, a more nuanced view where people will be able to see what he's doing and not overlook bits of it because they're only focusing on the medieval element. And I and I hope also that it will encourage people to take a more well-rounded view of him as as a man, um, as a thinker, as an academic, as a you know, as a family man, um, as a member of the Inklings, because in all of these things. when we see that his personality was more complex than we've assumed that it was hitherto, that's, I think, going to help us approach the other aspects of understanding his life and his work uh, with a bit more understanding, I think, with with seeing more depth and complexity. Now, since this is a C.S. Lewis podcast, I naturally have to ask some C.S. Lewis-related questions. And a lot of people express their opinions very boldly about the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien, and particularly towards the end of Lewis's life, and especially Tolkien's thoughts about Jack's books. So given that you've immersed yourself in the primary sources, I'm really interested to know what the truth actually is. 
what did Tolkien actually read of, first of all, the Chronicles of Narnia? And what did he actually think of it? And I am just so glad that you asked that question, because that turned out to be one of the sort of discoveries, in a sense, that his alleged hatred, um, his alleged dislike of Narnia, note the alleged, it's very much overplayed. Um, and what I did is I, I asked myself, what did Tolkien say about Narnia? What had he read? And I followed the trail of, of what people had said. And it turns out that everybody kept quoting somebody else rather than Tolkien. And I followed the train back and back and back through several layers, um, partly, and this was what some of the layers are influenced by, uh, by Carpenter, but, but not all of them. And what it comes down to is that Tolkien had heard read to him the first couple chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and he didn't particularly care for them. Now, what's interesting about that is you don't have Father Christmas at this point in the first couple of chapters. Right. So is, is that true? Did he particularly hate Father Christmas? Well, see, this is what we know for sure that he read. Oh, sorry. What we know for sure that he heard the only thing we know for sure is that those first couple of chapters. And it's from that that we get his strongest recorded remark where he says, oh, you know, the fawn, like it just won't do. That has been exaggerated. And Humphrey Carpenter um, took it just won't do and applied it to the entire Narnia Chronicles. When in fact, that statement was very specifically um, about Mr. Tumnus the fawn in the first couple chapters of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I want, like readers, listeners should, should think, if you only heard the first couple chapters of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you've got this little girl going into this house with a fawn, keep in mind that Tolkien and Lewis were both scholars of, of Renaissance literature. The fawn is associated with rape and seduction. It's not a nice figure for little girls to be associated with. And we know now that Mr. Tumnus, well, he, he was actually planning a bad, you know, a bad end for Lucy. He repents. He turned out to be a good, a good guy. We know all that. But put yourself back to Tolkien, who, by the way, has a, has a daughter. <laughs> you know, does he, you know, what is he thinking about? Like, Lewis, what are, what are you doing? You're having your little girl character <laughs> go and, and, and be, you know, in this, in this private, you know, house setting with this fawn. What's going on? And that, I think that's a legitimate objection given that you don't know where, where it's going. And it's interesting to note too, that he, he mocks, oh, you know, the love life of a fawn as one of the titles on Mr. Tumnus's bookshelf. Now that does not appear in the published text. So we don't have a draft of, of, the, of the novel because Lewis didn't keep his drafts. So we don't know. But I think it's entirely possible that that comment rang true for Lewis and he realized that it was a little bit too racy to have the love life of a fawn in this book and he he cut it. Like, I think that's quite probable because Tolkien had a point. Now, to get to your larger question about, um, you know, what did he think of Father Christmas? It seems that at some point he must have read um, the rest of them. Um, or at least must have read the rest of Language in the Wardrobe, because elsewhere he he does you know comment that he doesn't particularly care for Father Christmas. Um, but then again, neither did Roger Lancelin Green, who was a great promoter of um, you know Lewis's works. 
you know, there, there is a, a very good and logical reason for Father Christmas to be there. And my, my colleague, Michael Ward, has made a, you know, very good explanation of why that is in, in Planet Narnia. Um, but he's, you know, Tolkien wasn't the only one who thought that Father Christmas was maybe a bit out of place. So those are the only things we know about his negative reaction. Um, he, he, he commented also he didn't particularly care for the way that Tolkien is, is kind of overt in his you know, religious imagery, but he's, he's consistent in that. Um, he doesn't care for the way that Charles Williams does it either, I don't think. Um, and he himself takes a different approach. But I wanna call your attention to something that Tolkien said um, much later in his life that um, Carpenter doesn't mention. Um, later in a, in a letter um, that's not included in the letters, he, he comments that the Narnia Chronicles are deservedly very popular. Deservedly very wow. popular. And he says to his, his uh, correspondent that he's glad that they've discovered Narnia. And his granddaughter, Joanna, rec recollects that he kept the Chronicles of Narnia on the family bookshelves for the children to read, the grandchildren to read when they came to visit. So he, he had a very close relationship with his grandchildren. Um, he was very attentive to their reading habits and their books. He had the Chronicles of Narnia for his grandchildren to read. He must have had a, a pretty positive view in them. He says that they're outside the range of his imaginative sympathy because he doesn't care for the way that Lewis does, you know, his religious themes. It, it's, a, it's a mixing of, of forms that just was not to Tolkien's taste, but he doesn't say that they're bad. In fact, he says they're good. So the whole Tolkien hated Narnia thing is really kind of been overblown because it, it kind of, I don't know, it's kind of exciting to think that, you know, Tolkien and Lewis, you know, boom, they're your antagonists. But the reality is it's, you know, much less dramatic and much more consistent with what we know of their friendship. I'm really pleased to hear that. <laughs> uh, what about Lewis's other books in general? So, for example, The Screwtape Letters is dedicated to him. Once again, I'd heard that once once again, Tolkien wasn't a fan of Lewis. Lewis's overt theology in his books. You know, he, he doesn't seem to be particularly um, in favor of that. No, um, it's just not it's not what he cares for. Um, he also, I think, didn't particularly approve of of people working outside of their field. So the fact that Lewis, who is a literary critic, was basically writing theology, um, I think to Tolkien was just not what was just not right. I think Tolkien had the view more of let the theologians do theology, let the literary critics do literary criticism. Because it isn't, it isn't that he disapproved of the public broadcasts. That's not what he objected to, because um, Tolkien himself was quite keen. He wanted to be the reader when they did Sir Gowan and the Green Knights on BBC Radio. In fact, he, he, he practiced it to audition for the part to be the reader, and they didn't pick him, but he, he would have. So, so Tolkien was, was quite keen to do literary critical kinds of endeavors for the public. I don't think he was particularly approving of stepping outside of your field of expertise. Now, I disagree with that view. I'm glad Lewis did it, but it's a legitimate view, you know, um, and, you know, they just had a difference of opinion on, on how they should approach these things. Um, and I, I think in general, he, he just, again, didn't like the overt approach. He chose to do things differently, but he really did appreciate a great deal of Lewis's work. 
um, he read a lot of it. Uh, and for instance, I know now that he had on his shelves um, poetry. He had, he had Lewis's Dimer on his shelves. He gave a copy of Lewis's poems to a friend as a gift. And you don't give people gifts of books that you think was, are- you know. Was it a friend he liked? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I, I think we can say that. Um, so again, we see this, this positive, positive reaction. Um, he actually excerpts one of the poems from Pilgrim's Regress in his um, Beowulf lectures as a prime example of a good poem about a dragon. So he, he, he loved that poem. Uh, and then one of the things that was really interesting was to realize what a positive view he had of the Ransom trilogy. So he really, really enjoyed Out of the Silent Planet. In fact, he went to bat for Lewis to get it published. He, he wrote this long letter of praise to his publisher saying, you, know, you really should publish this book. Uh, and his own publisher didn't pick it up, but quite possibly on the strength of Tolkien's recommendation, sent it with a favorable view to another publisher who did publish it. So here is Tolkien helping to get the first volume of the Ransom Trilogy published. And Tolkien loved Paralandra. He thought very highly of Paralandra. Um, he didn't care for that hideous strength. He didn't like the, the kind of Charles Williams element in it. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he thought very highly of the first two Ransom books, you know, and those are deeply theological books, but they're, they're theological in a more understated way than the Narnia books or like the Screwtape Letters. So again, I think here we're seeing just Tolkien's preferences. And when Lewis is doing something that deals with the theological themes in a kind of more understated way, he was all in favor of it. He thought it was great stuff. Although to be fair, if anyone ever writes a series of books about me where I'm the star and I save the day on Mars and Venus and eventually Earth, I'm probably going to go into bat for it as well. Well, well, quite, quite possibly. Uh <laughs> uh, just before we, let's just uh, wrap up the Lewis and Tolkien connection, because one of the other things that is often put about is the fact that their friendship really soured towards the end. Uh, what's your take on it from reading the sources? You know, I, I think, again, that, that it has been played up to be more antagonistic than, than it is. Um, did they drift apart to a certain extent in their, in their later days? Yes. But we also have to realize that they were very, very busy men. They had full academic careers. And, you know, Tolkien's, his letters are full of, you know, committee meetings that he has to be on and projects he's late with and grading that he has to do that he's behind on. Yeah, Lewis also, again, had a full schedule and was writing massive amounts of things. Well, so it was Tolkien, he just wasn't publishing it. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then Lewis got married um, and, you know, that Tolkien didn't particularly get on with Joy, you know, with Joy. But then again, not not a lot of Lewis's friends did. Um, uh, and but in any case, that takes Lewis away into kind of a different orbit. So I think there's some very good reasons why just the natural busyness of of their lives drew them apart to a certain extent. And you know, of course, Lewis dies sadly relatively young. But you know, we could certainly expect that. Imagine that they had both lived into their 80s and were able to you know be in retirement together. I think we have every reason to believe that they would have drawn back together again. Um, and I mean, take for instance, the fact that 
Tolkien was highly instrumental in securing um, Lewis's um, chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge. And that was a lot of work because Lewis was, was kind of a pain in the neck about it because he was anxious about you know, leaving the kilns. And, and first he says no, and they, and they don't take no for an answer like Tolkien and his, his other friends. They go back and they actually manage to get it so that he's able to be offered the post for a second time. That's a lot of effort to make for somebody that you're allegedly like, you know, on the outs with. So again, I, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of respect there. Did they drift apart a little bit? Yes. Did the relationship actually sour? I I don't think so. I am going to be linking to this episode so often. <laughs> <laughs> As we're rounding the corner towards the finish line. Lewis's former secretary, Walter Hooper, recently passed away. Uh, did you have any contact with him during your studies and your various stints in Oxford? I did, um, because he, he attended mass regularly at the Oxford Oratory, and I went to daily mass there pretty often, usually a couple times a week, every time that I was in Oxford, which was usually for a couple times a, a couple months a year for the last 10 years. So I really did have a chance to, you know, just sort of interact with Walter on a kind of a low key basis um, over a stretch of, of years. So I, I didn't ever know him well, but I, I knew him for a while. And I always he was always so happy to see me. He always had that that big, warm smile. And, oh, how have you been? It's so nice to see you. He would always just be so glad to see me after I'd you know, been away for for a stretch. Um, and I did talk with him a little bit about um, Tolkien, um, and he shared actually a, um, an anecdote about visiting Tolkien in hospital and finding him reading an Agatha Christie book, which I have put into the book. <laughs> um, so, you know, so I didn't I didn't know him well, but I I was he was he was an important figure, and 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 not just an important figure, he was a really sweet and gentle. Um, man uh, and just so genuinely warm um, and, and sociable and always glad always glad to talk and it was you know it was moving you know talking with him especially talking to him about Tolkien and realizing that I was speaking with someone who had known Tolkien who actually knew him in person longer than he'd known Lewis uh, you know, because Tolkien lived longer and it was really just moving to to kind of think of that continuity that here I was in Oxford, you know, writing about this literary figure and talking to someone who had known him well as a friend. And it, it really just was a reminder of, of the way that these authors are not just names in the covers of books, but they're real people with real friendships and Tolkien walked the streets of Oxford in, in the rain and the fog as, as I have done. And, went to mass in the same places that that I did and we had a mutual friend so I I can actually say that you know I had a mutual friend with Tolkien and that was just it's tremendously moving to to think of that absolutely I I will I think I told the story before on the show but I bumped into him at the Oxford Oratory as well if if I thought about it I could have planned it but it was quite wonderful for it to be purely accidental now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've written two other books, Not God's Type, uh, a book, I must say, which my wife particularly loved, uh, and Apologetics and the Christian Imagination. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about those books? 
Well, not God's type is uh, my memoir. Um, so I was not raised to be a Christian. Um, I was actually an atheist through uh, my early adulthood and, and became a Christian and then um, entered into the full communion with the Catholic Church a few years after that. And so not God's type is, is that story um, of how that, how that came to be. Um, and then Apologetics and the Christian Imagination is a, a book of really that drew on um, my teaching at, at uh, Houston Baptist University's Cultural Apologetics Program, um, where I was teaching people how to use the imagination, how to engage with culture to share the faith in a way that is actually meaningful. And drawing heavily on the work of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, because not only do their literary writings do this really marvelously by gi giving you a glimpse of, you know, sort of the, the universe viewed through Christian eyes, but in their um, academic and literary critical writings, they really give a kind of a theory of understanding the, the role of the imagination, which is really pivotal for me in understanding why is the imagination so important? And so my, my case there is, is basically that to argue for a both and, you know, the integrated approach, as I say, where we need good arguments, we need evidence, we need those things, that they're essential. The Christian faith is true, <laughs> um, but we need to help people find them meaningful because that's a, a theme more or less of my apologetics work, which is that people, it's only when people find something meaningful, do they care whether or not it's true. Hmm. So in a way that the first step has to be to show that these questions are, are, are significant or meaningful, have, have some actual substance to them. And then we can talk about whether they're true or not. And it's not just, you know, talking at people. Wonderful. Dr. Oldway, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about your new book, Tolkien's Modern Reading. Where can people go to pick up a copy of your book and where can they go to find out more about you? Well, um, as with almost every book these days, you, they can just go to Amazon, um, but they can also go to, straight to the publisher, wordonfire.org slash Tolkien. And that is actually available worldwide. So um, listeners who are in the UK or Australia or Europe can also um, order the book through that link. Um, and for more about uh, my work, they can go to my website, which is hollyordway.com. And for the cheapskates among you, I must also point out that if you buy the book from Word on Fire, it is currently discounted on pre-order. So get to it. Thanks again to Holly and also to all of our top tier supporters, Jeff, Chris, John, Kate and Rowdy. Uh, please follow us on social media, including our new MySpace page. We finally did it. We were on Facebook before. We're on Twitter, Instagram. We are now finally on MySpace. And please sign up for Patreon and you can then join us on our Slack channel for conversations about theology, beer, flowers and classic fountain pens. And lastly, t-shirts and glasses are still available on the website. And Matt and I, we've got a few other pieces of merchandise in the works. So watch this space. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.